ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by their Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Russian monarchy used elaborate displays of ceremony and imagery, not simply to demonstrate the majesty of the sovereign and his entourage, but also as instruments central to the exercise of absolute power in a multinational empire. My guest, Richard Wartman, calls these rituals and languages scenarios of power, where the Tsar crafted narratives to legitimize and set the charismatic tone for his or her rule. But how did these scenarios function, and what were their limits as the gap between Tsar and people expanded in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Richard Wartman explains. Richard Wartman is the James Bryce Professor Emeritus of European Legal History, specializing in the history of Imperial Russia at Columbia University. He is the author of many books on Russian cultural and intellectual history, including The Crisis of Russian Populism, The Development of a Russian Legal Consciousness, and Scenarios of Power, Myth and Ceremony in Russian Monarchy, from Peter the Great to the Abdication of Nicholas II. He has also published two volumes of collected articles, Russian Monarchy, Representation and Rule, and Visual Texts, Ceremonial Texts, Texts of Exploration, Collected Articles on the Representation of Russian Monarchy. His most recent book is The Power of Language and Rhetoric in Russian Political History, Charismatic Words from the 18th to the 21st Centuries, published by Bloomsbury Press. Here's Richard Wardman. You know, I thought we'd start by by try looking at, you know, thinking about your work over the years and, and some of the themes that work work through it. And, and in an essay reflecting on the evolution of your work, you wrote that you've been consistently fascinated with how, how systems of thought enthralled and inspired historical figures. And we see this in your early work on populism and legal consciousness, development of legal consciousness in Russia, all the way up to your most recent work uh, on charismatic rhetoric in, in Russian political history. So what informs this fascination of yours? Well, what informs it is a concern for the personal and psychological significance of ideas uh, that they take the form in the minds of uh, of thinkers and then uh, dominate their personal lives as kind of existential aspect to this in in Russia because so much of both the uh, the intellectual life and the and political life uh, is based on cultural determinants that are brought to Russia and we'll be talking about that later. And uh, and the individual defines uh, himself in this. 
And this is abetted by the, my close reading of sources, where I found the uh, uh, not simply an enumeration of particular ideas or dry ideas, as much as uh, a reworking of the ideas in the minds of the individuals uh, to give each individual or each official or, or, or whatever you have uh, a, a personal meaning to the ideas. Now, this happens in, happened in the context, and two things I'd emphasize. Uh, one, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago when I first went to Russia, and so I went uh, from an, a setting where the uh, intellectual tone was set at least in, among the graduate students I knew, not in history, but in economics, uh, by a kind of libertarian economic doctrine is dominated by, and people got very, uh, very worked up over that, by Milton Friedman and others. And then I go to Russia, and I get the opposite. In other words, two systems, and people believed it and thought about it, and they, and I myself, product of the 1950s, uh, was very non-ideological. I never was fascinated by Marxism as a as a uh, way of uh, a political ideology, though I I of course studied it uh, as a historical uh, doctrine. Now, this also occurred at the same time as I was very much influenced by psychohistory and the belief that, uh, that uh, one can, uh, Eric Erickson and others, that uh, one could plumb the minds of uh, individuals. And it was reflected particularly in my advisors at the time, Leopold Hameson's book, The Russian Marxists and the Origins of Bolshevism, where he took the individuals and integrated them, I think, very well their personal lives, their background, uh, with the forms of Marxism that they came out with. Uh, and I was, uh, uh, that work and my earlier work on uh, on the Slavophiles, which was uh, much slighter, tried try to find these uh, the individual psychological dynamic that went on. Now, I, I got beyond uh, psychohistory after a while. Uh, it was too reductive. But I kept the uh, psychological orientation, and what I really was after is the mentality of individuals and how the um, ideas figured uh, in their personal lives. And uh, I used this approach in all the things I wrote, and I think that way it gave me a sense of the actual feelings and attitudes at the time and the personal dynamic that that drove the intellectual involvements. And, and I would, I think, I would add too that um, in your approach towards ideas, it, it's not just one of looking at the emergence of certain ideas, how they're adopted, and in you know, as you said, how they they structure the mentality. But in, in within this, there's a certain anthropological aspect too. I mean, anthropology in your text plays a really in in your work plays a really big role. How does anthropology allow you to, you know, when you're so, for example, when you're looking at the symbolic importance of ceremonies of, around the coronation of the tsar, how does anthropology add another layer to this engagement with ideas? Well, it did. Uh, in part, this, this came also through Hameson, who worked with Margaret Mead, and his approach, and it's entering uh, the notion of anthropological observer standing apart uh, from uh, the society and being being able to enter into its 
patterns of thought and the structures of thought uh, that reflected in the work of uh, Schills and uh, and Geertz, um gave me a, uh, and the way they did it and getting a feeling particularly for the culture uh, and the anthropologist's notion of the culture and underlying all of my works is a sense that uh, Russian culture is very distinct from Western culture. Uh, I am uh, uh, very openly a uh, a believer in uh, the, the uniqueness of the Russian experience, uh, and which I the point I, I make in many of my of my works. So I do take the the opinion of the anthropologists, as as Geert said, uh, uh, you're entering into a uh, another culture. You who at first have difficulty finding your feet uh, in the culture. And when I went to Russia, and I had been in Europe before, I was struck how very, very different it was, how very, very different Russians thought, and how very little of this was conveyed by, uh, you know, superficial political uh, uh, political uh, views. So I was, and I, I met in, in bo- uh, both of my trips to Russia in the 1960s, I great met a great number of Russians and I think got a feel for the society. You know, it's interesting uh, about the your emphasis on the distinctness of Russian culture because a lot of your work is also about translation in the sense of, and this, by this I mean how ideas uh, from the West primarily are incorporated into the Russian context. Um, how do you understand uh, Russia's entry and performance in, in what one uh, statesman under Peter I called the theater of the world, so how they, they imported these ideas, beginning really uh, in earnest with Peter I. The way I understand this is it, the, the uh, incorporation of European ideas and cultures and imagery uh, becomes a constituent element uh, in the governing of the Russian state. It was not just an outside pattern, it was not just theatricality, but the legitimization involved a process of separation, uh, separation, elevation of the state above the population that was expressed uh, very much in cultural terms. So that you have the sense, and I mentioned the conquest um, myth, the ruler coming from abroad, uh, and in a drama the con- uh, of conquest that led the presentation of the monarchy to, as the embodiment of foreign, often more advanced models, in other words, a vanguard institution, and had uh, earlier been uh, in a different perspective with uh, Byzantium, um, but distant from the ruled population. So this uh, gave a rationale for vast uh, transformation, uh, absolute power, and uh, there, so there are certain aspects I'd like to emphasize on that, that culture uh, is a p- political device, not only a, uh, a kind of covering and dress. And then uh, two other points that uh, the creates a mentality uh, of distance in a, in a way that it does not tolerate compromise. Uh, 
that, uh, uh, in other words, a central issue of this is maintaining the distance, and therefore you have a, uh, a, an attitude of non-compromise with the subject population, uh, and this then distinguishes uh, Russian monarchy, say, from German monarchy or Austrian monarchy, which also uh, had absolutist tinges, uh, but they did reach compromises. They did introduce uh, uh, various uh, institutions of uh, government, uh, and it's quite, it's quite apart from the, uh, the different social situations and the lack of a kind of uh, feudal uh, background uh, in Russia. So that, that's one uh, aspect of it, an absence of uh, compromise. The second is that each reign, the scenarios, uh, would signal a break. In other words, indicating uh, the Petrine ethos was utilitarian, that he's governing for the well-being the, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the state, the blaga ruskula kasudasva. And this also means there's a lack of a, a, a traditional grounding for autocracy. So you have the phenomenon in the uh, 18th and 19th century of um, uh, various uh, rationales for the autocrat as he or she comes to power, uh, is going to better the country, an ongoing rationale that is reflected in the scenarios, uh, which you don't have in uh, particularly in the 19th century, where monarchies had a more confident and traditional basis uh, for their legitimation. If I understand you correctly, the, this gap between, say, the autocracy and the the people is vast and then you have no need to compromise, then all of this symbolic legitimation, who is it aimed at from the perspective of the Tsar? Well, it's aimed primarily at the elite who who joins the uh, Tsar in ruling and, and, and uh, enjoys his reflected glory. And the service to the Tsar is basic to, uh, to that. And and so uh, uh, the elite becomes uh, very Europeanized, uh, and Peter, of course, forces them to appear uh, uh, European. In, in that way, he uh, he creates his governing uh, administration and military in the European uh, image that then creates the glory and the power and reach of the Russian state. Now, another issue, and, and this is always a contentious issue in the Russian context, and that is uh, the issue of Russian nationalism and how it fits within the Russian empire as a multi-ethnic empire. Um, and this always seems, the tension between the two seems to pose a problem for the monarchy, and then, of course, it continues to pose a problem for the communist government and really up to, to the present. Why was Russian nationalism a problem in the 19th century? Well, it was a problem, uh, uh, namely because the state uh, justified itself as a non-Russian phenomenon. And so what you have is, one, the uh, all-Russian empire, the Sierra Imperia, and uh, Russianness. Uh, so there's Russia, the, the dichotomy that uh, develops between Russia and Rus, uh, Greater Russia and the uh, core 
Russian and ethnic Russian uh, uh, boundaries. So the, the once the state, which justifies itself on a universalistic, non-Russian uh, characteristic, runs into the problem after the Napoleonic Wars, quite clearly, of uh, justifying itself as a national entity. Uh, and at first it does so, uh, particularly in the writings of official writings of, say, Nicholas Karnamzin and Sergei Ovarov, uh, by defining the Russian aut autocracy as a national institution. In other words, that the Russian people love their, their czar, foreign as he might be, uh, and that in that way, uh, Russia saves the principle of absolute government, uh, which is under threat from uh, in all the European countries that are undermined by the virus of um, liberalism in, in particular and other uh, other other doctrines uh, so uh, now this this of course uh, didn't uh, didn't work all, all that well uh, because you have intellectuals beginning to look for a real Russian identity apart from the state. So you have the Slavophiles looking in one way and the Westernizers uh, another way, and both of those are considered subversive. The Slavophiles were considered just as subversive as the Westernizers initially in the, in the middle of the 19th century. So uh, this tension continued. But uh, the empire obviously did not want to encourage nationalism because that would give the nationalities too much uh, to go, and uh, and so uh, so uh, sought to hold it back. Now, since Russian was one of the nationalities, uh, they, and you begin to develop an ethnic sense, that's where I see the mechanism for the shift from the European myth to the Russian myth. And at that point, with Alexander III and Nicholas II, you have the Tsar appearing not as a European monarch, but striving to show his Russian ethnic credentials uh, and in dress and in uh, imagery and church building and in rhetoric that the uh, um, and this is kind of, kind of becomes a kind of state Slavophilism. Slavophiles themselves uh, thought the state was a, a remnant of Peter the Great and didn't like it. Uh, and now the, uh, they try to sh uh, show the state as a Russian institution. Now, this, of course, it didn't work completely. I mean, both uh, Alexander and Nicholas II were very European, but they did various things to show their Russianness. Uh, and the state ideology, to a certain degree, lost uh, cohesion as the uh, as society developed during the century. Now, a lot of of what you've been talking about falls into um, the, your work with over the last decades, and that's on what you call the scenarios of power uh, and how they relate and how they're performed and articulated by the Russian monarchy. So, before going into more detail about the these various scenarios, what are scenarios of power? Well, I see uh, scenarios are the individual performance of the myth. In other words, each czar comes to the throne uh, in his own way, trying to show how he is European, uh, or she is uh, European, in ceremony, imagery, 
in this way asserting the transcendence of the monarchy, the distance of the monarchy, uh, by appropriating the, the pre- prevalent foreign representations that were about. Uh, and this this is one thing that, produce, uh, that produces the discontinuity in much of the uh, imagery and, and, and thinking, since each individual ruler in many ways sought to distance himself in addition from his uh, predecessor in trying to show the, uh, the transcendence and the westernness, or later on the Russianness, in his own way. So each monarchy takes on what I see as a, a personal um, presentation, a personal acting out of the uh, of the myth uh, in terms of the period, in terms of the needs of the autocracy, and 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 sometimes the responses. Uh, of uh, society, um, and uh, this uh, this I think uh, uh, is a uh, trigger uh, for the uh, the developments of each uh, each reign. Uh, so we see, for example, Peter's scenario. He's also the introducer of the myth, of course, uh, as the scenario of a founder, uh, and Catherine the Great as the scenario of a a kind of philosopher king um reading european philosophy and alexander the first as a an angel um dealing with the predicaments and alexander the second as a uh, scenario of love between the society and the monarchy which uh, the uh, reforms were supposed to achieve but of course, it didn't create that in the long run. So that I borrow this uh, almost un- unwittingly from the, you know, the distinction, the linguistic distinction between um, uh, language and and word, or language and speech, uh, uh, that that fa- uh, the kind of dualism there, uh, and the uh, the interaction. So that the uh, uh, you have a, a a kind of dynamic of change uh, within a continuity of uh, mythical transcendence. Now, one of the the interesting, at least I found it, find it really interesting developments uh, beginning in the mid nineteenth century for the monarchy is the greater appearance of the imperial family and the myth around them. And in the the monarchy scenarios of power, um, it seems the imperial family, at least from my reckoning, wasn't really on public display. Uh, first, it, it, I think under Alexander III, it becomes the most prominent, and well, begins to become more prominent than, of course, under Nicholas II. But it, to some extent, I think starts under Alexander II. So, no, what? No, 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 well, I would disagree with that. Okay, sure. Uh, but, you're, but certainly, I have an article uh, uh, called uh, "The Imperial Family as Symbol." Uh, and, and that focuses on Nicholas I, because Nicholas I introduces the image of the family, uh, and in this way he incorporates uh, the, uh, the sh- shift in values in Europe uh, from the libertinism of the 18th century to the post-restoration conservatism uh, reflected in the family, particularly in Germany, and particularly uh, in, by uh, uh, Frederick William III, 
who uh, Nicholas I idolized. And, of course, he married uh, Princess Charlotte, who became Empress uh, uh, Alexandra uh, Fyodorovna. So he depicts the imperial family as the embodiment of the nation. And, and his uh, his rule, therefore, and encouraged family feelings throughout it. And, and, and the family was a, a figure uh, very prominently in the ceremony uh, and rhetoric of, of the reign. Uh, I, I said that forth in, in that article. Now, uh, Alexander II continued this, of course, but uh, he uh, more or less uh, acted completely contrary to yes. it in his life. <laughs> yeah, his personal behavior <laughs> so, was something so else. <laughs> that, that caused some problems, uh, and uh, as we know, uh, and uh, Alexander III then returned to the uh, the ethic of his grandfather, and again, again, the imperial family, and also under Nicholas II, uh, was presented as a uh, as the image of the autocracy, the the moral idol, uh, moral symbol uh, of autocratic government. Now, thinking again about this idea that you put forward a a little bit ago about the the gap between the autocracy and the people, do you see uh, that gap closing more into the late 19th century with the the change of, say, the adoption, say, the the image of the family as one, uh, the adoption of the Russian national myth by Alexander III and Nicholas II. Do you see an attempt of these scenarios to close that gap? Uh, there is an att- attempt symbolically, uh, but not uh, not politically, uh, except under Alexander II and and the, and the fact that he got burnt by it was uh, a lesson. Uh, so symbolically, yes. Uh, that's why I, I think symbolism is so important uh, in the autocracy, because uh, um, consent, which was part of the 18th century enlightened absolutist view, was realized uh, uh, symbolically by uh, by uh, symbolic uh, uh, expressions of acclamation at coronations or, or weddings or what uh, by the elite. And uh, that, that's why I, uh, in the recent book, uh, I emphasize the words uh, love and joy and things, uh, which were supposed to give uh, the consent of the of the people uh, without any kind of participation or representation of any kind. So in, in, when it came to the late 19th century, the closest it came was in the first years of Alexander II's reign, uh, and he actually allowed projects to circulate. But in the end, of course, that, that caused many, many projects to be circulated. And in the end, he put his foot down and said uh, that could not introduce parliamentary government. And the reason he gave was that if he, if he introduced a parliamentary government, the empire would fall apart into bits. Now, how did 1905 change things? 1905 changed things radically. It, it changed things because uh, the, um, the, the, there had been, because of the reforms, a growing alienation between the state uh, apparatus and the czar uh, uh, because of the uh, judicial system uh, and, to a lesser degree, the Zemsa system. What 1905 did was uh, to uh, create a uh, parliamentary institution that was forced upon uh, Nicholas II, by the revolution, 
and which he never came to terms with. And so what Nicholas does is to distance himself even more from the government to undertake these uh, mystical reenactment of 17th century Russia in the costume ball and other things uh, appearing in the garb of uh, Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich and emphasizing his direct personal religion, which was not the same as Russia, the, it was not what the Russian Orthodox Church believed in, uh, with the uh, Russian uh, Church, and you know all the stories of the holy men circulating. So he separates himself from it, and he takes every, makes every effort to dismantle the constitutional order. There's resistance, but he sabotages it. Uh, he undercuts the leapin', uh, and it gets worse and worse leading up to the First World War. Now, the way I see this coming out is that by 1914, the status quo had no support in Russian uh, institutions or society, except perhaps for some members of the Octopist Party. In other words, the autocracy itself had become a subversive institution uh, because it was trying to undermine the very institutions that he had introduced to permit its survival. So I think 1905 uh, prepared the way for 1917, and not in the way Lenin said, the, <laughs> that's rehearsal, but by permitting, not permitting, but hastening the disintegration of the institutional order. So does this phenomenon after 1905 and this kind of fragmentation of various elements of, of Russian state and society uh, and monarchy, does this reveal the limits of the scenarios of power in terms of it, as you said earlier, a lot of it is symbolic without any, unlike in the European case, any institutional undergirding of these symbols? So is is this the the... the kind of contradiction of these scenarios of power when they're performed? Well, I think it, uh, I think it, uh, they did not adapt. And, and this goes back to my notion that the, uh, that the, uh, the autocratic mentality, it's mystique, uh, is not adaptable. It had reached the point where some kind of compromise, like in Germany or Austria, was necessary for it to continue. But in uh, in 1863, Alexander II, in uh, 1881, Alexander III, both made it clear that autocracy was not going to make the slightest uh, concession to society, and and, and uh, therefore what you have is violence as the only alternative. Now, in your your most recent book, and you already mentioned this a bit, but I, I'd like you to talk about it a bit more, uh, your new new book, The Power of Language and Rhetoric in Russian Political History, you examine various concepts of the monarch's ethics, you know, sentiment, duty, justice, law, among others. Talk about the importance of this charismatic language to Russian politics. Well, I, th I think it, 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 was, uh, it was central, uh, and uh, the... Uh, um, Yuri Lutman wrote about Peter the Great's uh, creation of a new language, uh, a, uh, a um, renaming of everything. Uh, and so he created new names for uh, society, for the state, uh, for service. And I had the feeling, uh, for example, with service, uh, Slujba and 
gold. Uh, these took on what one uh, uh, Russian uh, historian uh, calls a uh, very uh, sacral character. And uh, when they when they spoke these words, uh, they were coming from the throne in the 18th century, and uh, therefore this was part of the uh, the ceremony of um, of reproducing of, of the the elite more or less acting as a mirror or an echoing chamber of, of what went on. Uh, therefore, the uh, all of that. Uh, um, uh, became very important, and uh, this uh, the theater became very much of a uh, uh, of a means of doing this. Uh, the uh, noble theater in the 18th century, uh, and uh, various works have uh, have, uh, have have shown that. Uh, so uh, this, and, and then in terms of uh, of law, the um, what uh, Peter does is uh, uh, is to confound law. Which was Pravda. This is in the writings of Fyodor Prokopovich, who, who was his major ideologist. Uh, combined uh, Pravda with Zakon, in other words, justice and legislation, which means that the uh, uh, the regime co-opted uh, justice, and this only began to decline in the. Uh, decades in the middle of the 19th century where it no longer seemed to be justice and where the word pravda comes into existence as meaning not only truth but justice this becomes a a a particular charismatic word because its meanings changed all the time but it always packed an emotional wallop and was used all over the place and, and that's what uh, I have the chapter on uh, on uh, Pravda. Now this came to me particularly because I begin uh, with uh, a chapter on a kulturnist uh, in the uh, Soviet period because kulturnist uh, was a big campaign of the Soviet regime in the 1930s. And when we got there in the 1960s, I, uh, I, you, know, you you're probably too young for this that. But uh, everything was. Uh, we had uh, babushkas come up to us and claim uh, claim that we uh, weren't dressed right or weren't behaving right, right? and it was that uh, uh, we didn't have the right coats on, uh, or that we di- didn't deposit our coat at the garderobe in the theaters, and they, it, all all of this was called nikulturni. You see, everything was nikulturni. I don't know if that still. Holds. I got um, it. I got it in the the late two thousands. <laughs> oh, oh, so the same still similar there. things. Oh yes, yes. I got yes, some well, from archivists this, from older <laughs> Russians. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, Nikulturni is a big thing uh, and a, uh, a favorite uh, uh, moment that I record there. Uh, that uh, my wife and I were having dinner at the professor's cafeteria Moscow University and this fellow dressed as a mujik comes up sits down on at our table uh, brandishing a bottle of Soviet champagne downs the bottle of champagne and he says with a big smile Shampanskoye eto ochin kulturni napitok so and I, I compare then the uh, the culture campaign uh, in the 1930s and then go back to Peter the Great's introduction of the civilizational process uh, with the terms for culture and good behavior in the 18th century as kind of also uh, flowing from the uh, from the throne
Now, one of the the terms that I, I found particularly interesting because I it, I think it reappears very clearly even today, and that is the concept of celost. That is the integrity of the uh, integrity of the realm or the state. Um, talk about the significance of what this word is and in its significance. It, 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 it is a uh, it is an expression, a deep expression of concern about the unity of the empire and a fear that occurs uh, intermittently uh, that it will fall apart. And uh, this begins with Satishif, uh and he mentions that. And it had two two emotional sides to it. One uh, is the admonitory that uh, uh, watch out, uh, we're doing this to preserve the unity of the empire uh, for defensive or other other things. So it appears with uh, Peter the Great, this is the justification for changing the succession law, that if he doesn't do this, uh, he doesn't change the succession, the, the state will fall apart. That it appears also uh, on, on Catherine and to a certain degree under Alexander II uh, as a key to maintaining autocratic power. Uh, then there's the uh, celebratory side, which Catherine, in another part of her reign, um, uh, she had stated in her final things that he had followed the Petrine form- formulation completely. But in the other part of the reign, she rejoiced in the size of the empire, uh, and the uh, various uh, spokesmen did too. And then in the writings of uh, uh, Michael Katkoff in the 1860s and 70s, he he uses the term all the time to glorify the uh, empire. Uh, And then Nicholas II, when he issues the October Manifesto, he says he's doing that to preserve the integrity of the empire, uh, Celest. So uh, that, that, that actually, that formulation probably is owing to uh, Vita, who uh, drafted the October Manifesto. So it's an ongoing concern, and of course, l- later on, uh, the um, it becomes an issue with the Cadet Party and in the Civil War. Uh, now, with the Soviets, uh, then it uh, uh, I, I did not research the uh, Soviet periods. Uh, I'm that that. I maybe should have done, but I didn't. The uh, in the twentieth century, the term changes to celestnost, and yes, and then it comes back, and um, uh, Putin refers to it in his speeches uh, that the Russian people are the heroes of celestnost. The Peter Stolypin was a hero of celestnost, and this of course was uh, after the uh, Soviet state had begun to begun to fall apart. But he is, of course, trying to either to keep it together or restore it. Uh, it's unclear what. Uh, so it's a, I think it's a very important term. Because you can, you can see, even if the, the term itself isn't used uh, to say today, you can see certain echoes and concepts of it being expressed in a variety of different ways. And finally, given this work on scenarios of power in the imperial period, um, do you see any legacies of those scenarios, and, and not in the particular content, but in at least in the performance of a scenario of a power in in Russia today? Well, I do and I don't. Uh, certainly, there there is an attempt 
uh, by Putin to enhance power by by uh, various uh, um, performances and theatricality. The, the, the virility theme is the most most uh, uh, most uh, potent. And you have words like vertical of power, which take on a charismatic uh, element. Uh, and all of this, uh, the, the stuff, uh, I don't know if you know the work of Pomerantsev on, uh, on Vladislav, uh, Vladislav uh, Surkov, uh, all of this uh, uh, trying to take bits of the past uh, and, uh, and, and, but all of this has a kind of, uh, uh, of, uh, postmodern character to it that Pomerantsev points out. And also, uh, what's her name? Um, the, uh, future of nostalgia. Oh, Svetlana Boim. Svetlana Boim. So you have these bits and pieces thrown about that, that make no sense. And so you have um, the uh, inauguration uh, of Putin in the uh, in, in the Kremlin, and and several newspapers have said this is like going back uh, to, uh, to a coronation. Well, <laughs> it's kind of a parody of a coronation. Because you have this uh, little guy in a business suit walking down the, the long path. It's almost comic. Uh, and, of course, and the coronation did not take place in the Kremlin Palace. It took place in a church uh, and with the, with the Tsar wearing church vestments and with a, uh, a uh, religious ceremony. So it's, it's all uh, fragmented. Oh, and, and one uh, uh, other aspect of that, I don't know if you know about this, a, a stereo of uh, uh, a visual a video, rather, of um, Surkov's library. Mm-mm, no. Yes, uh, I, I have it. Uh, I have it on uh, on my disc. So somebody, uh, undoubtedly, with Surkov's uh, agreement, uh, did a, a video of the books in his library, and right in the middle of them. The Russian translation of scenarios. Of <laughs> if so you want, I'll send made, you the link. You've made your mark. Yes, please send me the link. I'll, I'll <laughs> Maybe include... in a way I didn't intend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah. Please send me the link. I'll include that in the the post for the podcast so people could see it. That's really. You no, know, I can send it right to you. Yeah. That was Richard Wortman the James Bryce Professor Emeritus of European Legal History specializing in the history of Imperial Russia at Columbia University. He is the author of many books on Russian cultural and intellectual history, including The Crisis of Russian Populism, The Development of a Russian Legal Consciousness, and Scenarios of Power, Myth and Ceremony in Russian Monarchy from Peter the Great to the Abdication of Nicholas II. His most recent book is the Power of Language and Rhetoric in Russian Political History, Charismatic Words from the 18th to the 21st Centuries, published by Bloomsbury Press. Also, if you want to see the photo of Richard's book, Scenarios of Power, on Vladislav Surkov's library, uh, it's picture number 22, go to the post of this podcast and click on the link for it. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, 
but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Why say it?